Welcome to Fate's Wide Wheel, a Quantum Leap podcast with Sam and Dennis. We are coming to you from our top secret headquarters at Project Quantum Leap, but you can find us online at fwwquantumleappod.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Fate's Wide Wheel. And please do us a favor by hitting the subscribe button on iTunes. All right. Hello, everybody. Hello, hello. Welcome to Fate's Wide Wheel, a Quantum Leap podcast with Sam and Dennis. All right. Well, should we dive into this week's episode? Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. So we are talking about Shock Theater, which is the season three finale. Our director is Joe Napolitano. Uh, This is his seventh of 12 episodes. Uh, Before this, he had done Leap Home Part One, Black and White on Fire, most recently Heart of a Champ. Uh, Next up, he'll do Play Ball, and uh, then a few more episodes throughout the, the, the course of the series, including the infamous Curse of Tahotep. (laughs) Um, It's written by Deborah Pratt. Uh, This is her 11th of 20 episodes. Uh, Star-crossed, Color of Truth, So Help Me God, Black and White on Fire, Last Dance Before an Execution is her most recent episode. She'll also do Dreams next up, and then, uh, of course, Trilogy, uh, amongst others. Uh, Of course, we're all familiar with with Deborah Pratt. Uh, The air date for this episode is May 22nd, 1991. Our leap date is October the 3rd, 1950. And Sam has leapt into Sam Biederman in Havenwell, uh, Havenwell, Pennsylvania. So it's interesting. We have two October episodes in a row. That's yeah. And we are absolutely. We are in October in 2018 as we cover this we uh, are, serendipity. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the recent thing that I like doing, uh, I'm pulling this out of Matt Dale's book. What the episode was titled in other countries. Um, in Germany, it was called shock therapy. In France, it was called backlash. And in Italy, it was called oh gosh. Yes. Although the Italian apparently was oh mama. Oh mama. Which <laughs> interesting. Enough. Yeah. How about that? How about that? <laughs> yeah. So uh, let's do the TV guide description. In a season-ending cliffhanger, Sam Scott Bakula is a mental patient who gets an overloaded shock treatment, which sends him tripping through previous incarnations. This is one of those episodes that gunned in my head. I could probably recite word for word. Now rewatching it yeah. for the first time this morning, yeah, I don't, I don't know about that. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, yes, this is one that I watched constantly. And it's interesting to note the TV Guide description noticed that it's a, it's a season-ending cliffhanger. This is the hour of television that, as a kid, introduced me to the idea of the season-ending cliffhanger. Um, because I think previously, because I caught, I started watching Quantum Leap at the end of season two, and so there was uh, the, 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 the season finale of, of MIA of season two. Like, I didn't, like, fully, like, get the idea that that was the season finale because I had just recently come to the show and there were episodes, there were repeats playing all throughout the summer. And so I didn't really catch on to that idea. Um, yeah. I- yeah. You know, it's interesting for me because this, de- this one definitely um, was embedded pretty deeply in my memory. And I think like the both of you, it's one that I saw more times than some of the other episodes. Um, I, I can remember, you know, the last time that I really was watching Quantum Leap was um, towards the end of college, and uh, I remember, I, I don't 
remember exactly what year this was, but I know that one Oscar Sunday, um, there was a marathon, unrelated obviously, a marathon on the Sci-Fi Channel of Quantum Leap episodes, and so uh, we were having an Oscar party that night, and I just invited a bunch of people over early um, to watch the, the marathon if they wanted to, and of course this episode was included, and um, you know, it seemed to be one that was always included in any kind of... Um, you know, retrospective or best of or, or whatnot that they did on Sci-Fi Channel. Um, rewatching it, uh, a lot of it, you know, came back to me pretty quickly. But there were certainly uh, little things that I, you know, I'd kind of forgotten here and there. Um, the personalities that he, you know, kind of trips back into, as TV Guy put it, uh, I was able to recall those pretty easily. You know, obviously, I think Samantha Stormer and, and Jesse Tyler are the two that stuck out the most in my in my memory. Um, I'd kind of forgotten uh, until it happened, and then it really all kind of came rushing back to me, but I, I had kind of forgotten magic. Um, mm-hmm. For some reason, that just wasn't, that hadn't been in my head, but then as soon as it happened, I was like, oh, right. Um, and the thing that I think that surprised me the most is I felt like, and we'll talk about this more later, is that I felt like I had recalled Tibby having a little bit more to do in the episode, and he really doesn't, and I feel like he kind of gets the short shrift a little bit by the end of the episode. I feel a little bad for Tibby, you know, and, and clearly the focus is on Sam and Al, and I get it, but uh, there was a moment there when I was like, hey, what about what about Tibby? Um, all it takes is a rap. <laughs> <laughs> the most iconic moment and quantum leap ever, uh, yeah. It's you know yeah. As I was rewatching it this morning, like I realized that you know, uh, speaking of what you said, Sam. Like, unfortunately, like what happens with Tibby's character mm-hmm. is the byproduct of the deck. Sam has to leap in there for something. Um. So yeah, like Tibby was just like yeah, he was just like a, a plot device. Like, oh, this is why Sam would be here to help him. And if you really think about it, it is kind of flimsy because Tibby is not going right. to get out of the institution for another seven years. So why would you have Sam leap in now instead of close? Yeah. Instead of closer to, to the time when he was going to be released from, uh, from the institution. But yeah, uh, don't, don't think about it too hard because, uh, you know, really it's, it's all just, a a setup to, to tell us a story that is really <clears throat> truly centered around Sam and, Al and uh, uh, what, what what happens to Sam when in his mind when he gets thrown some when he gets thrown some electricity? Yeah, well, it's definitely the first episode that really examines you know what happens with other the, with the people that he's leapt into prior to this and their personalities and how they do kind of imprint on him and and I think gives credence to that sort of that fan theory which I mean I I think gets a little bit more validity in 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 a couple of later episodes but certainly um you know this is one of the first times that we really kind of see the hint that you know pieces of them do kind of transfer with him and and and, you know you think kind of vice versa probably as well which I think helps them to probably reintegrate once they leap back in um which I'm I'm willing to classify that as not entirely fan wink. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> well, it is interesting though. At some point, Don Belisario said that from the beginning he had always imagined that Sam would start losing his mind from trading mm. places with so many people, and in his mind, this episode was the start of that. Mm. We don't see him starting to mind meld a lot with uh, with the Leapies until season five. 
Right. But it's according to yeah, according to Don Belisario, like this is kind of where that starts. For sure. And I think that we get, you know, the next time we get really a big focus on it, obviously, is, is going to be Lee Harvey Oswald. Um, yes. True. Yeah. Absolutely right. Which is another Deborah Pratt episode. So, you know, that I think that makes a lot of sense, uh, considering that she was kind of guiding this ship just as much as, as, as Belisario was, um, if not more in some cases, quite frankly. For sure. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, we said this is a a consistent fan favorite uh, with a lot of people. You, you know, like anytime they do a marathon, it pops up. Um, Any time that there's an article, usually like if there's a top 10, usually this episode uh, is on there. It won. Um, if it didn't win a lot of awards, it was nominated for a lot of awards. Uh, Bakula was nominated for a golden globe for best actor in 1991. Uh, he got an Emmy nomination. And um, in case you're listening and you don't know the way, those nominations usually kind of work like they win for the show overall for that season, but typically the actors or their representation will choose to submit one or two episodes for the season. And that's what it's based on. And so yeah. this was the episode that those nominations were based on. Right. I mean, so, the idea behind that, of course, that, you know, the, the voting body isn't going to watch the entirety of the season of every single show. And, and instead, you know, here's one episode that kind of exemplifies the work that they do um, so that they're not watching, you know, a few hundred episodes of television, but instead maybe, you know, eight. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And uh, Stockwell was nominated for, for an Emmy this season, too. So. Yeah. So, um, I, I, you know, I think that um, upon rewatch the interesting thing to me, and I understand obviously why it gets used, especially in those marathons, because obviously it's not the first episode that's usually thrown in there, um, is that it is a very atypical episode. Um, so I don't find it to necessarily be exemplary of the series as a whole, but it's definitely a standout episode just due to the quality. I think the quality of the writing and I think the quality of the performances across the board, really. I mean, everyone is, is fantastic, the, you know, the guest actors as well. Um, it does make it a standout episode in the series, even if it's not necessarily the best example of Quantum Leap. No, and it's also, it is the best non-lazy version of a clip show for a series <laughs> that I've ever seen. <laughs> totally. It's it's not uh, the season two finale of The Next Generation. <laughs> if you oh recall God. that one. Karen, yeah, are you a Star Trek fan at all? No. Okay. So season two of The Next Generation ended with uh, one of the characters, Riker, getting bitten by a poison plant on a planet and in order to save him they had to put him into a medically induced coma and flood him with negative memories because negative memories somehow slowed down the poison and so that led to uh, a bunch of flashbacks to the first two seasons conveniently Riker only flashback to his time on the Enterprise which at that time was just two seasons in, but yeah, yeah that was a pretty that was a pretty lazy use of the concept of the clip show. And uh, while I could be wrong, but in in going through the IMDb, 
the only Star Trek connection that I could find would actually be uh, for Bruce Young, um, who plays the um, the orderly that shocks Sam um, Butch. And the funniest part about this is he was actually a part of the fan show Star Trek Renegades, which CBS, of course, and Paramount filed a lawsuit against them. Oh, that's right. Um, yeah. And so eventually they had to rebrand the show into just Renegades, but it's clearly still Star it's, Trek. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's that's the only Star Trek connection I could find this time around. So. Paramount does not joke around about that. Like they're pretty, yeah. they're pretty notorious for shutting down any kind of fan fiction or anything like that. Uh, a lot, yeah. I, I, you know, I've noticed recently actually that a lot of people seem to be, you know, cracking down on that. And I think part of it is, you know, it makes sense. Obviously, it's their intellectual property, but at the same time, because streaming is is kind of revolutionizing the way that we digest content, and knowing that the way that a lot of these shows were distributed prior to that was on the internet, that it makes sense, I think, for these companies to crack down even more. And then obviously when you have Paramount wanting to kind of restart the franchise and and freshen it up with their streaming service, and hearing what AT&T and Time Warner are doing, which pisses me off, mostly for the loss of Filmstruck, which is one of the most Mm -hmm. wonderful streaming services that I've ever had the pleasure of taking part in um it 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 really bothers me because i think that the you know this this idea that they're going to try to you know put all the content under that umbrella it it really is a bid to kind of bankrupt netflix in a way to to get rid of their um rights to to a lot of these television shows uh which eventually they'll run out and the only choice that they'll have is to keep producing their own content as opposed to being able to license anyone else's content for sure, yeah. But that's a conversation for another time. <laughs> yeah, on the flip side, like, whereas, like, Universal and Quantum Leap, like, there's an entire fan movie, A Leap to Die For, that's true, that, yeah. um, that they they allowed or they didn't try to shut down. Like, Deborah Pratt even plays the voice of Ziggy in, in the fan movie. Have you seen that one, Karen? Uh, I watch, I think you can watch it in its entirety on YouTube. Um, and for it being a movie, I think it's only, like, an episode length, I think, it may be 40, 45 minutes long. Um, but yeah, it's one of, one of these days. Yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting, it's an interesting experiment. Uh, and it, it was shot like in and around Indianapolis. So that's pretty close to where we live. So that's, that's interesting too. We'll get around to covering that one on the podcast. Well, all right. If, if we <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, so now that we've, we've called out like the, uh, the accolades of this particular episode, maybe just acknowledge up front. There are problematic elements to this episode. Yes. I mean, just uh, across the board, how they talk about mental illness and just, you know, loony bin. I'm, I'm not even sure if asylum is the appropriate, is the appropriate term by, by today's standards. Um, well, the, the fascinating thing about that, in my opinion, is that had any of the characters, with the exception of Al, talked about it in, in, in that language, it would not have bothered me, and I would not have found it problematic. But because Al ends up being one of the worst offenders, I, I find it very strange and very odd for multiple reasons. The biggest one being his history with his sister. It, uh, it, that's it, honestly, it's, it, if I was going to make a criticism of, of anything within the episode, it would be that that stuff did not necessarily ring true to me, because I understand how 
he's motivated to help save his friend and get his friend out of there and that that trumps everything. But I do find it odd that he's not more sensitive to Tibby and to the rest of the, you know, for lack of a better word, Mm. this is how they're treated, inmates. And again, it it just didn't ring all the way true because of, of the fact that you know, he'd experienced what he had with his sister. Yeah. Especially there, there, there's a line that I cringed when I rewatched it this morning. Um, when he realizes that Tibby can see him, uh, he has a line like, Oh great. I'm tuning mm. to dogs. I'm tuning to kids. And now I'm tuned into the mentally absent. Yeah. Why not blondes? And it occurred to me, like if I were, uh, I would hesitate to introduce anyone to quantum leap with this episode because of that line. Because even, like, by 1991 standards, that's pretty insensitive. Yeah. Uh, so so there is that, uh, there is that you know, obviously that, that language around it. Like I said, like, it passed in, in 1991, but, like, yeah, I, I think by today's standards that would not pass. Yeah. I, you know, it's interesting because doing a little bit of research um, on the time period and how mental health was, was treated, um, it... The 50s were really kind of a start of, of, of a lot of change in that area um, because of the, the post-World War II era um, and, and a lot of um, the idea that doctors that had not been trained in psychiatry were all of a sudden having to um, deal with psychiatric problems uh, because uh, so many of the veterans returning to civilian life were having difficulty. And it was something that, you know, we didn't talk about a lot during that time. Um, but the, the truth is that, uh, things did start to change. Um, and, and, and more focus started to be put on the field and I, and it led to both positive and negative consequences. Um, you know, of course, anytime you can raise awareness, there's something positive about that. Of course, the negative side of that is that, a little too much power was exercised. And we get an example of that within this episode with the use of, you know, the electroshock therapy or electroconvulsive therapy as it's known today. Uh, and, and that it was so incredibly commonplace. Um, some people may not know this, but it's still in use to this day. Um, that, that I, I think somewhere, um, around, you know, the, the most recent study that I could find was actually about 15 years old, but, um, that around half a million people every year, uh, received it in the United States alone. Um, so I, I found that a little bit surprising. I had even thought in my mind that it was something that we just didn't do anymore, you know, along the same lines as like lobotomies. Um, but it, it, it is still in use to this day. Uh, a lot of the standards around it have changed quite a bit, but back at that time, if a doctor ordered it, it was just, that was all there was to it. Um, and, and it was, you know, involuntary a lot of times. Um, I don't know, but there were, but there were, there was definitely a movement uh, in the early '50s, from what I was reading around the time that this episode would take place, especially with a lot of young doctors to kind of move the field forward and push forward with treatments um, and and explore a lot of these illnesses and get a little bit more specific with the issues as opposed to just labeling somebody, you know, this person's a, disp- a depressive, this person's schizophrenic, and, and kind of ending there and realizing that there were, you know, there's a there was a sort of a microcosm within each of those that needed to be explored. In order to understand and then better treat people. Um, so it's kind of interesting to think that this episode took place at a time when you were having that clash between the old ways and the new ways. And I think we do see a little bit of that, although very subtly, within the context of the episode. 
for sure. Yeah. I mean, there's there's also the I don't know if this is a problematic thing, but it's, it's certainly a, a plot issue that even when I was a kid, like first watching this episode uh, for the very first time, it it is very simplistic and clunky that a shock treatment of 200 volts is what knocked out his ego. And an exact same shock therapy treatment is what's going to get him back to normal. Sure. <laughs> it's, well, like, it's like, all right, that's a little, yeah. I suppose that's a, you know, that's a, that's kind of a, a general conceit, though, of a lot of science fiction. It's like, well, whatever got you there, the same exact circumstances were going to get you back, you know? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it, it does create for, for a dramatic ending of, of getting Sam back into the shock therapy room to, or into the treatment room to, to get him another shock. Yeah. You know, and it's worth noting because I think that for, you know, some to, it, it might, it, you know, it might be like, oh, well, that's far-fetched. He gets shocked and all of a sudden all this crazy stuff happens to him. And the truth be told that um, side effects uh, of electroconvulsive therapy uh, are, are pretty varied and that people have had all sorts of, of issues um, um, as a result um, including, you know, developing epilepsy, um, uh, memory loss, um, to, you know, to the point of, you know, not remembering the past couple of days to not remembering years to not being able to create new memories, uh, all sorts of things, um, effect on sleep, um, uh, effect on, um, you know, distinguishing between, uh, what was real in the past, what was unreal. So not really schizophrenia, but, but, but something kind of almost, you know, uh, effect on your memories. So, uh, yes, of course this is fictional, but at the same time, there are enough documented cases of some of these side effects that having an effect of, in particular on memory, um, that in the case of this science fiction concept, it's not too far. It's not too far. The, I uh, mean, like, especially like how Sam gets there, I could totally buy receiving a, sh- a shock therapy treatment. The, the, this right. would, uh, I could totally buy that. Oh yeah, this this sends him like you know, tripping back through and and, and going back and remembering all these people that he's leaped into before. Well, could totally buy that conceit. There's even a couple of famous cases. You know, Ernest Hemingway uh, received it um, at the Mayo Clinic in 1961, and uh, he is, is quoted by a biographer as saying. Um, you know, it ruined his head. It erased his memory. Uh-huh. Um, uh, David Foster Wallace also received it when he was young um, and, and had issues with his memory. Um, Towns Van Sant, a uh, famous singer-songwriter, um, he received it and said that um, it destroyed all of his memories of, of childhood. Like, he could basically... The, the earliest memory he had was when he was about five, and then he remembered nothing after that until he was about 19. Um, and it had a profound effect on him um, throughout the rest of his life. Um, you know, of course, fictionally, there's lots of depictions of this, including um, The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath and uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's something that's clearly been out there, and I think that we have uh, um, plenty of, of depictions of it besides Quantum Leap um, to sort of warrant its its... Menace for sure. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's interesting because uh, I didn't see One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest until years after I saw this episode. But Quantum Leap does a mm. lot of episodes, especially in the first, in the early uh, couple seasons, where they they don't ape the plot of of a particular movie, but they kind of 
pay homage to it, if that's what you want to call it. Sure. They kind of tip to it. And it's like, oh, like this is Quantum Leap's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah. At least as yeah. far as it takes place in the mental institution, shock therapy, so on and so forth. Right. No, I completely, I completely agree. And I think Bacula did it as respectfully as as possible, and this wasn't even like part of the conversation back then, but especially just the fact that he intimidated, he, not intimidated, imitated a person of color at all, their vocal mm-hmm. inflection, I think a lot of people would find that really problematic by today's standards. Yeah, which is, which is interesting to me because I feel like I have seen it. There's... I've seen it in context, you know, of a show even somewhat recently within the past like five years or so, um, where someone is telling a story, um, on stage and, and I felt like it it worked, but I could understand. I think part of the thing is, you know, anytime we create these dialogues in this day and age is that it, you know, you might not find it offensive personally, but if someone, if, you know, if a person of color were to find that offensive, then by definition, you know, there is something offensive about it. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 It, it's, it's not my place to say it's not offensive. R- right. Exactly. Um, and I think that, you know, for all three of those portrayals, um, specifically, and you could throw magic into the mix as well. Um, it, it could be, Problematic, but at the same time, I, he he does do it so well. Um, and if I'm going to be completely honest, and Karen, please feel free because obviously you're the woman here. But I almost find his portrayal of Samantha to be the most problematic of all of them <laughs> because it's very like the others. Sure, play into certain stereotypes, but at the same time, they seem to be done a little bit more gracefully. Whereas Samantha is just out and out kind of. This is, you know, I'm a girly girl from the 50s. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it, and, uh, yeah, for any of them, I could come up with various defenses <laughs> or reasons why. Sure. I, mean, for, I mean, for one, like, this isn't a conversation that, that anybody was having, like, like back then. Uh, right. But also, like, especially Samantha, like, this is the first personality out of the gate. They've never done this on the show before. It's a little over the top because it has to be over the top to convey that this is that this is something very different. You know, they couldn't really afford to be subtle. Yeah. With that. You know, one of the things that kind of to to move on from that for a second, though, one of the things that is very that is fascinating and I think says a lot about the writing of the episode is that each of the characters has the opportunity to address why they are now in the facility. Mm -hmm. You know, Samantha says like, Oh, it's because I hit my boss. Jesse says, Oh, you know, I sat down at the, and, and I love the reasoning that they give, you know, to kind of explain like, I don't belong here. You know, all I did was this. And Jesse's in some ways is the most heartbreaking for me when he says, I had the money to pay for it. I had the money. Mm -hmm. He starts like patting himself down to like find, you know, the money. And it's just like, Ah, like yeah. you can say it right now, it's like kind of having an effect on me because it, it was, I don't know, there's something about that that's incredibly I mean, heartbreaking. Yeah. You know, he's sitting there, he's just saying like, what, I was hungry, I sat down, I had the money. Yeah. Like that would be the problem. Like they, like they would just look at him like, well, yeah. clearly he's not going to be able to pay for this. So this is, that, that just occurred to me for the first time. Is this Sam processing the possible consequences for the people that he's leaped into after they've returned back 
after they come back home? Well, it's interesting because I think with Samantha, you know, you get the idea that that it's all post-leap. Yeah. But with Jesse, it gets a little muddy because with Jesse, it seems like he's just sat down at the, like, it's the leap in. Sure. But then he remembers, when he's doing the, the Warshak test, he remembers, um, I can't remember her name now. But Miss Melanie, Yeah. Uh, no, no, I was talking about his his granddaughter. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, yeah. no. He remember, remembers the car accident with her. He remembers that. And it's really, it's really interesting. And then, and then, you know, he starts to kind of remember the fact that he knew what to say to the doctors. Yeah. You know, and then he looks at the, this is the subatomic structure of a quark. You know, it's like, it, it, there's something kind of fascinating about the way that that in particular works. And it leads credence to the fact that there is some sort of melding you know, of, of the two personalities. Sure. Yeah. And, and Jimmy remembers having the job. So it does seem like you're that that's, you know, Dennis, I think you are kind of onto something that it is maybe his way of, it seems so incredibly real though, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, there's this part of me, it's wondering in, in, in the context of our time travel show, you know, are the personalities of these people literally leaping into Sam in this moment? You know, is there some sort of weird, like, quantum leap effect going on where it's, it is, you know, we've always, I think when we watch this episode, a lot of times we take it to be that Sam is having a mental issue or a mental breakdown of some sort that's causing these other personalities to come out, but it's still Sam. But what if, instead, in, in the context of quantum leap, these people are actually there? Ooh, that's interesting. Like, it is actually Samantha, it is actually Jesse, it is actually Tom Stratton, yeah. it is actually, you know, Magic, it is actually Jimmy, as opposed to Sam kind of pretending, I guess. Yeah. But what's interesting about that is that all of these moments take place in the future. Right. So these moments have actually haven't happened for these people yet. That's an interesting fan wank. I've never thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> It is interesting, yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and to touch back on the the, uh, the the vocal inflection that he uses for Jesse, like, I've always thought of it like not impersonating a person of color, but impersonating an elderly person. Yeah, like an, like an older person from the South. Yeah, because, like, yeah. Like, cause like, that old man voice is almost like my just go-to old man voice when... Right. <laughs> sure. Well, because let's, I mean, like, I, and when I say this, trust me, I realize that it sounds like those people that say, you know, what about, you know, the men's march or whatever, you know, but... I got you, yeah, yeah. We're talking, you know, we're talking about this, let's look at somebody like Kid Cody for a second, you know, should mm-hmm. Italian-Americans be upset because he's kind of doing this, you know, Italian palooka, you know, down on his luck sort of thing. I don't know. It's interesting, and I think that one of the things that we can't lose sight of, especially as actors, is the fact that when you are creating a character, and when you're trying to find that truth and that reality, that sometimes we we do need to stretch out and, and, you know, create a dialect or create a physicality that might not be our own, and to try to strip that away from people and put people into a box and say, no, you can only be this you know, you can only be that. It really takes away part of the beauty and the, and the wonder of the art form that is acting. So I think, you know, when you look at it in any context, there is, there's got to be a way to do it and make sure that it's done respectfully. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I don't feel like there's an easy answer to that. 
Right. Or I feel someone much more intelligent than me should be commenting. <laughs> <laughs> should be should be commenting on this right now. I think. Look, I think that there are lines. You know, mm-hmm. again, we we've talked about this a little bit before, but like obviously, I don't think that a white actor should don blackface to play you oh. know a person of color. You know, what Let, I mean? let's let's like, draw that line very clear. Right, right here, very very clear to say it. Yeah. Let's not um, make you know, Kelly this. Yes, yeah. Right, right, right. You know, I think that the you know, yellow face is another problem that we've seen a lot of. I think, you know, whitewashing should not, you know, be acceptable in any circumstances. But I'll be damned if, you know, especially when you think about how many Irish and British and Australian actors are playing people, you know, of, of American descent, yeah. if somebody's going to be able to tell me that I can't play a Brit or I can't play an Irishman or I can't, you know what I mean? I think it, and, like, it, so, it comes down to if it's a, it, it's a different thing, like if it's of European descent, that's one thing. Sure. Anything else, I think that's where we draw the hard right. line. Like any, especially like historically oppressed people. That's definitely where we draw the line. But look at somebody like Sean Penn and I am Sam. Like I don't think that there's any. You know what I mean? Like there's nothing to me that should be considered problematic about the fact that this actor was playing that character. Well, see, I was you know? I was saying about that today though too because like now like you know we're having these conversations where you know just like uh, a decade ago or, or, or fifteen years ago you had cisgender people playing transgender people and now that has definitely become very problematic. I can't remember uh, a movie that's come out in the last two or three years that focuses on a person with an intellectual disability. Sure. So I'm not even sure if we've, if we've had the opportunity in the last three to four years to have that conversation. Like, would Sean Penn in that role, would that fly now? Would an actor in one of those roles, would that fly now? Or would we have the conversation of like, no, if you're going to have a movie focusing on someone with an intellectual disability, you need to find an actor with that intellectual disability. Or, right. Yeah. Well, you know, and it's worth noting that you have Curious Incident of Dog at Nighttime, which is um, a play that has been on Broadway, and now it's, it's doing the regional theater you know, circuit, and recently was done at the Indiana Repertory Theater, which is my old stomping grounds and where I uh, was actually... Uh, performed a couple of times uh, when I lived in Indianapolis, and uh, it was the first production of that play to uh, hire a- an actor on the spectrum because the main character is autistic, and so they they had an autistic actor, and um, you know it was a very big deal, um, and I, I think that you know that kind of inclusion is important without a doubt, uh, but I I don't I don't know exactly where I fall, but I will say that if if every production of that play were indeed able to incorporate an actor on the spectrum, I would cheer for it. But I'm not necessarily going to criticize the productions that don't. Um, because, again, as an actor myself, I think that the opportunity to, to go there in a, in a respectful manner and, and, and to explore that can often teach us just as much, if not more. Um, and maybe that's from a selfish point of view as an actor, but I, I think that it's important, again, to realize that part of what we do as actors is to explore the human condition. And one of the only ways to do that and to create that connection with an audience is perhaps by going places that we aren't necessarily born to go, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I don't know. 
Um, I, as long as that representation is happening, mm-hmm. uh, I, that's the important thing. But I don't think it should necessarily be happening at the expense, you know, of anybody else getting to do that job. I think part of it is, is, is you know, diversity, equity, inclusion doesn't mean, you know, all those that fit this bill apply, everyone else, you're out. You know? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. This is a deep conversation for the third season finale of Quantum Leap. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about some standout moments, yeah, shall let's, we? Yeah. The episode, it, it does such a, a wonderful job without being... There are a couple of points, sure, but without being too overt that, that exploring the relationship between Sam and Al, and in particular how much Sam means to Al, and you know how hard he's trying to reach his friend... Um, and the you know the empathy that's on display for Al. I mean, sure, there are a couple of things he says that are either typical Al or or maybe a little problematic. But that said, there are a lot of times where it, it, it's clear that um, the the effect that that this is having on on him and, and, and the empathy that he's feeling for not only for Sam, but again, if we kind of go with the theory that these are these people that have leapt into Sam for those little moments. Uh, perhaps that he's also feeling it for them, you know, because as much as he's trying to reach Sam, you're right. In particular, that magic moment, it's it's, you know, he he it's it's almost like he feels bad for magic. Sure. <laughs> yeah, because I feel like a lot of the season, like after obviously like the leap home part one and part two at the start of the season, we didn't get a whole lot of like really personal moments of connection between Sam and Al. Mm-hmm. It's been very business as usual, very workmanlike. We haven't uh, got a whole lot of. Uh, mythology drops, info drops, like talking about their their history together. Um, you know, for example, I think in this episode, I think it's established they may have danced around it before, but like Al is Al is the person who gave Sam his first break. Um, yeah, and then eventually, like Sam returned the favor in a later episode, in the fourth season. We're going to get more details about that story, but we haven't heard a lot of details about their personal backgrounds with each other for a while. Yeah, and I feel like it's something that, um, you know, as a longtime fan of the show that I've almost taken for granted because I, you know, I, I have, like, these images in my head. And some of it's explored in the books, too, um, you know, like Prelude, for instance. But um, I have these sort of images in my head of their early relationship. And so when I watch the show, it's just sort of like, I know that. But kind of trying to put myself into that mindset of someone that doesn't know those things to get these little, you know, these little drops here and there... Um, it is incredibly satisfying, and it certainly adds to the texture of this episode and, and the weight of, of that relationship. For sure. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to note, uh, and this is trivia that's in Matt's book, um, one, Dean Stockwell like admits he does not have a good singing voice, and, and two, he, he talks about how his memory is built in such a way he can remember dialogue really well, but music is an entirely different thing. So I think, if I read it correctly, he was actually wearing an earpiece during uh, during the recording of the rap to kind of assist him along. And they had to do so many different tapes, takes because he kept forgetting the alphabet as he was singing it. Yeah, yeah. I've heard that too, and it is. It's in Matt's book as well. Uh, it's, that's classic. It's, it's true, though. Sometimes you forget, like, the, the silliest little things, you know, and, and, and you know, having done things where you, you know you're you're committing so much dialogue to memory and even you know long monologues and then it'll be like 
that one word, that one word response. It's a, you know, I, I remember in, um, I, I was in a production of Endgame, uh, which is a play by Sam Beckett, actually, and uh, and the, the character that I played, Ham, he had, he literally has like four and five page monologues in the script, and I had no problem with those at all. But then there, then there were like those issues that where you're doing this back and forth with the other character with Clove, and I think I literally think the line was yes, and for whatever reason I couldn't say yes, and it took oh, me God. until like you know tech rehearsals when I finally remembered like yes, and it's like everybody I could I could like I could feel it because I had to wear these contact lenses that widened out my eyes, but I could literally feel oh, the, the the like the director and the AD you know in the audience like he. Got it. He got the yes. You know, <laughs> it's the yeah. It's the weird mental blocks that you get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sam, what about you? What are your uh, some standout moments of this episode? I mean, I think I think Karen picked some really great ones, and I and I agree with them. I I, I love getting to meet Doctor Beaks. Um, I love the goodbye moment. Um, I, I think it's it's done really well. Uh, it's this interesting device, and I, I would wonder. What was you know in, in Deborah Pratt's mind um, when she came up with that idea that we couldn't actually hear Doctor Beaks? And there's something about that, that really kind of I don't know. There, there's this it, 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 whether intentional or not. There's this wonderful theme throughout the episode about communication and the fact that you have all these characters that are are not able to communicate well with one another from the very opening scene between Sam and the nurse and Butch it's like there's this there's this failure of communication and empathy that comes along with that communication and it's fascinating to me that you know a character who really in some ways is the most empathetic is the one that can't speak because she understands what's happening with Sam in a way that none of the other characters do not even Al and I don't know there's something about that that I really really liked um, and I, and you know, Sam as Kid Cody saying goodbye to her um, is, is is really well done, and her silent goodbye back. Mm-hmm. I really like that. Yeah. It, uh, so to provide some answers to you, and again, this is in Matt's book. In the original script for this episode, uh, Verbena did have lines. She actually, mm. um, she actually does a lot of the the talking about like Sam's background and what needs to be done to get Sam back. And in the original version of the script, there's also a dialogue between Verbena and Al talking about to get Sam to agree to get another shock therapy session, they have to, uh, I think Verbena hypnotizes him into becoming one of his more susceptible personalities. And they end up And they end up picking Jimmy. Because Jimmy would be easy to convince to do whatever needed to be done. Interesting. Yeah. But then Matt, he he postulates in this book, well, like, that creates a plot hole. Like, well, if you can hypnotize him, why not just hypnotize him back into being Sam? And so maybe that was a plot hole that they they wrote out. And also it's – and also I wonder if, like, creating the conceit of not being able to hear Verbena – was just a cost-saving measure because then they didn't have to give the actor any lines and they could pay her less. That's actually true. You do not have to. Yeah, it, it's non-speaking roles are indeed paid less than speaking roles. And it's a weird. It's like I I haven't done a whole lot of uh, film or television, but it's it's a weird pay structure because like one you have like the non-speaking role, 
and then you have what in the industry is called five and under. If you have five lines or less, you get paid one scale. If you have more than five lines, you get paid another scale. Yeah. Um, which kind of makes me think, makes me wonder why they they never explored the conceit of like, um, you know, we've talked about before, like showing the leapy from other people's point of view and having them speak because then yeah. you, because then if you hear them speak then you give them lines and then and then all of a sudden you're paying more money speaking of which i'm so glad you brought that up real quick i i, I want to get your favorite moments in a second too but we never see sam biederman in this episode we don't we that this is like a rare episode where we don't get any mirror image mm-hmm. i mean we do i tell you that we get lots of mirror images yeah. but they're mirror images of Samantha Stormer and Jesse Tyler. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the other the other moment that I want to mention, and it, it's I mean it's kind of an easy one, really though, is the the final um, you know few minutes with Al fading in and out and kind of pleading and begging with Sam as Jimmy to to ask for the the shock. Uh, you know Jimmy's fear over doing this. Um, you know you can tell this is excruciating for Al for so many reasons. Um, and then, of course, we'll we'll talk more about it later. But I mean, the leap out is pretty, mm-hmm. pretty damn great too. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, but the, I mean, the whole episode, I you know, again, kind of going off of what we were even saying earlier, the whole episode really has a lot of great moments. So, mm-hmm. uh, but those are the ones that would stick out for me. Yeah. What about you, Dennis? So for me, like rewatching it, it's the moments that really tug at my heartstrings are the first few moments of the episode where Sam is coming to. And he hasn't slipped into Samantha yet, and he's, like, getting a grip mm-hmm. of what's going on and telling Al that he doesn't want to be there. And, and uh, when, when Freddy, the orderly, leaves, he just starts, like, crying after Freddy, like, don't leave me, don't leave me. It's like when he is Sam in yeah. the episode, those are the moments that are heartbreaking for me. And, like, where he breaks through a little bit throughout the rest of the episode— uh, like like later on, like he slips into Tom Stratton, but then Al fades out, and you just one moment right before commercial break where Sam says Al, and you could see like just for a second like he's come back, mm-hmm. um, and uh, also I think that 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 slips through a little bit with Kid Cody because like, sure. like I, the way I interpret it, it's like yes he's Kid Cody, but there's a little bit of Sam who recognizes Verbena and he hasn't seen Verbena. In a while. Right. And so I feel like that a little bit like when he's saying goodbye, there, there's a I mean, it's Kid Cody, but there's a little bit of Sam there, too. Sure. Saying goodbye. Uh, and then and then, you know, the, the final sequence that we discussed, like when he's like saying to the nurse, like, save Jimmy, save Sam. Like, yes, like Sam is riding alongside, too, during all of this. Yeah. And those are the moments that that really get me. And, and of course, the. Uh, the moment right before the very first commercial break where, um, you know, Sam is saying, I'm, I'm here because I hit Buddy Wright, R9, he sits down on the bed, he said, that's it. And he starts, like, playing with his hair with the hairbrush, and then the focus switches to Al. And then Al has yeah. the line that says, my God, they pushed you over the line. Yeah. Those, yeah, those are the moments in the episode. Yeah, one thing I want to jump on real quick, too, that I, I meant to mention earlier that I found interesting is that um, we know how anti-smoking Sam is at this point. Mm-hmm. And so it is kind of amusing that as Samantha, he asks for a cigarette. And that, smokes said cigarette. <laughs> that is... That is, yeah, because we haven't seen Sam smoke a cigarette since first season, since played against yeah. Seymour. Yeah. And he's out and out, like, 
been anti-smoking since then. Yeah, you know, throughout. Yeah, that's yeah, really so interesting. Enough. Kind of uh, so a- another interesting note about that. So most recently, I have been watching these episodes on Hulu instead mm-hmm. of Blu-ray, just because it's easier. Because oftentimes, like we watch it during nap time with the with the closed captions on. And actually, I just hit a point where I just prefer watching things with closed caption anyway. Sure. Um, the early episodes on Hulu were the syndicates, were the syndicated yeah. versions with with the with the deleted scenes. But now, as as the series has progressed on Hulu, they have the original versions with the deleted mm. scenes. And it's interesting to know because the Sam asking for a cigarette that's a deleted scene if you watch it in reruns. But now on Hulu, they they brought those scenes back. Yeah. Watching this one on the Blu-ray, I was just struck with how great it looked, um, and and uh, especially the colors. Because this episode, there's a lot of interesting lighting. Mm-hmm. You know, when we're actually on the ward, it's it's usually very dark. There's lots of sh- shadows, but then when we're in the the uh, interrogation room, for lack of a better word, um, you know, the brighter lights, etc. And then of course the leap out at the end, being outdoors. Um, I thought, it was, yeah, it was just really really great. Um, of course, the thing is, is that the special effects suffer a bit from that because they look a little either more noticeable um, on the Blu-ray than they are maybe on, on Hulu or whatnot. Um, but anytime like Al is a hologram, it's just sort of like, oh, man, you know, it's uh, like, yeah, yeah. But hey, it still works. Um, so I, I'd like to do our IMDb bit. But before we do that, I wanted to give a little time to... Um, one actor in particular, and, and specifically his character, we kind of mentioned it earlier, and that is, of course, um, Tibby, um, who is played by uh, Scott Lawrence. And we know that this episode is not as much about Sam's mission um, as we've seen in you know all of the other episodes of the series, pretty much. Um, I said earlier that Tibby kind of gets the short shrift, and I'm interested to know what you guys think, and in particular, just you know what you thought about his character as a whole, and the portrayal, and, and the interactions with Al and with Sam. Um, because for me, I think that in spite of maybe getting shortchanged when it comes to the you know the actual mission aspect and you know the the, the resolution, um, that the character itself is someone that you cannot help but feel a great deal of empathy for and compassion for and 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 you want to see him succeed and you see this just this really good person um and 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 I have to admit that you know even seeing Scott Lawrence and other things um after this episode that there was a part of me that always couldn't help but sort of cheer for whatever character he was playing, even if he was maybe diametrically opposed to the hero of the show that I was watching or whatever, uh, because of his portrayal of Tibby. I, I don't know. There's something about it that really kind of touched me, so I'm interested to know. Uh, you know, I was... I, I had never really given a lot of thought, and, I, and it tripped over me when I was rewatching this morning, and Carrot, you brought it up. Like, you didn't know if there's... Realize there's any such thing as mild down syndrome. I'm googling it really quick. I don't think there is. You would think like the way they present it in the episode, like with Al consulting the hand link, it's not like anybody taking a guess. You would figure like it's somewhere along the way. Tibby was officially diagnosed. Yeah, yeah, and this is where he's getting this information at. And I feel like it was like 
mild Down syndrome was like this lazy thing that they invented on the fly. So that because like mm-hmm. Down syndrome does come with certain physical characteristics which Tibby does not have. Yes, and and, and so yeah, it, it yeah it that's just kind of a bit of lazy writing on their part instead of you know giving them something else. Where even like even if something like on the autism spectrum like that wasn't diagnosed or, or, or handled as well. Yeah. So I feel like it, it was something to, yeah, it, it was, uh, kind of wobbly, uh, why I was there, but that being yeah. said, well, go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, go, go ahead, Dennis. I'm sorry. No, but that being said, you know, you said like, you know, you remember Tibby having a lot more to do in the episode. And I think that just speaks to the actor playing the role. It's like, he, he makes a lot out of what he has when there's not much there uh, because that occurred to me too. It's like, Oh yeah, he's, he's, he's got a few substantial scenes. He has some funny interactions with Al and I love, and I, I don't think I ever like really understood the line, but now watching it with the subtitle this morning uh, at one point in the episode, he says, love your threads to yeah. Al. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, and it's just, yeah, I just really love that line. Yeah, uh, no, he's, uh, again, I just think he's such a great character, and he also proves something that I said wrong uh, earlier, which is that uh, he is our official, because, you know, Butch was not in real Star Trek, he is our official Star Trek guest star, because he was indeed in an episode of um, Star Trek Voyager, um, the episode The Void, Mm -hmm. playing Garen. Um, but his career in general um, spans from about 1987 um, with an episode of Murder, She Wrote, where they did guest start on. Um, he had a, a short run on Murphy Brown. Um, he was in one of my favorite TV shows of all time, China Beach, in the episode The Call. Um, he would go on to do um, uh, West Wing. And, mm. of course, I mentioned Jag earlier. He played... Um, a character by the name of Sturgis Turner for 77 episodes. Uh, lots of voice acting work as well, um, especially in the Star Wars franchise of video games uh, and 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 um, television shows. He has got to be one of the most used um, individuals because he voiced, uh, this is kind of a big one, he voiced Darth Vader a number of times in Star Wars video games, uh, which I think is, is fascinating. Um... Uh, Star Wars TIE Fighter, Star Wars Dark Forces, Star Wars Rebel Assault 2, um, just, I, I mean, again, it goes on, Star Wars Rebellion, and he was voicing Darth Vader and all of those, but then, uh, later on, he would end up doing, um, uh, well, there's more Darth Vader on here, uh, but he would do also the, um, cartoons, um, uh, uh, Rebellion, uh, he did a bunch of voices for, um, and, yeah, I mean, just a, a huge career in television and film. Um, he was in Avatar, The Social Network, um, you know, lots of L, excuse me, Law and Order, uh, NCIS, Sons of Anarchy. Uh, he was also in Star Trek Into Darkness. So, uh, okay, that's probably... Multiple, mm-hmm. multiple Star Trek stuff. Uh, and then, most recently, um, he was in the television program Rectify, uh, which is a phenomenal television show that does not get enough talk uh, as far as I'm concerned, it is on Netflix, and everyone should watch it. it. It gets a little uncomfortable at times, but it is it is a brilliant show as far as I'm concerned. Um, and it looks like he's got something coming up here um, um, called Unbelievable. He plays Special Agent Billy Taggart 
Um, I don't know anything about this show at all. It's in pre-production, uh, it yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's in pre-production. But what a so, cool name. Um, yeah, right? I would trust a guy um, named Billy so, Taggart. Uh, and then I, we've got, uh, really, I, I mean, there's a lot of people on here with, with, you know, pretty lengthy credits, so I'm not going to list them all, but uh, David Proval, who plays Dr. Masters, uh, stuck out to me because of his work as Richie April in The Sopranos, um, but that's just one of, of many shows. Uh, you know, he, he was... Um, Let's see, most recently, uh, he's got a ton of stuff that's either filming or in post-production, um, but he was in a few episodes of Vinyl, um, which was the Scorsese show that did not last very long on HBO. Um, the, uh, you know, just a lot of television, everybody loves Raymond, um, you, you know, lots of film as well. Uh, he was in an episode of The West Wing, um, Friday the 13th, the TV series, uh, Dennis, that one's for you. No, I'm, I'm, um, the I'm the Halloween fan. Friday the Thirteenth, eh. right? But didn't you say that you liked that the TV show, or did, is, am I thinking of something else? Um, we were talking with that. Were we talking with Matt Dale about the TV show at one point? Uh, Friday the Thirteenth, no, because it led us into the talk about that other TV show that you can't find that you liked, the Nightmare Cafe. Yeah, Nightmare Cafe. We had a brief conversation. Um, Bruce Young, who plays Butch, we already mentioned his uh, Star Trek Renegades work, um, is, is pretty recognizable face as well. Um, done lots of film and television, um, you know, NYPD Blue, uh, Boomtown, um, Grey's Anatomy, and uh, he was uh, a main character on The Sentinel, which was a UPN show. Um, I don't know if anybody's going to remember or not. Um, he also played the character of Carl Robinson on Highlander. Um, worth noting because Highlander was actually one of those shows that was pretty good with their recurring characters. So oftentimes, you know, a character might show up in an episode or in a flashback of one episode and then, you know, recur for a few episodes. And he was definitely one of those characters. Hmm. Um, did a stint on the X-Files, um... You know, going back even further, uh, he played the character of Moselle in Color of Money, which is a favorite film of mine. Um, the first ER TV show, uh, he was uh, also in um, as Officer Fred Burdock. Uh, and it looks like his earliest role goes back to about 1981 or so um, with the uh, film Thief. Um, he also did Risky Business. How about that? Oh, interesting. Um, and please, anyone, stop me here if you want to interject anything about any of these characters. But uh, next up, uh, Candy Ann Brown, who plays Dr. Verbena Beeks. Uh, she will, of course, return as Dr. Beeks um, in the next episode. Um, she's been, you know, working, you know, pretty much ever since then. Was on Six Feet Under, CSI Miami, and Chicago Hope, which is Dennis and I have talked many times about being the superior of the two hospital shows that premiered in 1994. Um, and, uh, she was actually on the Adams Family TV show. Interesting. Like the, the, the cartoon that was spun off of the film from the early, nineties. Mm -hmm. Um, anyway, uh, lots of stuff uh, on her, uh, uh, credits as well. Going back to Wonder Woman in 1979, um, and then, last but certainly not least, a character that I think has some really interesting interactions that I'd like to talk about briefly when we get done with this is Lee Garlington, who was Nurse Chatham. Um, you know, again, just lots of stuff uh, all the way up until today. Some stuff that I honestly have not really heard of, um, uh, although The Magicians, um, which is on the Sci-Fi channel, um, 
yeah, I, I, Longmire, uh, which is a great TV show also in its own right. The Killing, uh, another great show. Um, and just, I, I mean, her, there's, I, I mean, honestly, her credits list is huge. Um, she was in a 1992 made-for-TV movie with Dean Stockwell called called Shame, um, which plot-wise, it was kind of very similar to the Quantum Leap episode Raped. Oh, okay. Um, teen girl raped in a small town, being encouraged to go against the odds and press charges. Mm. So, yeah, I had remembered that airing after Quantum Leap had ended, but no, it was on uh, during Quantum Leap's last year. Interesting. Okay. I had no idea. Yeah, because that's, uh, that's where, yeah, that uh, that's what sticks out for me for, for her. And, like, yeah, she pops up, like, you know, and in, in, in everything there. She's easily got the most credits. Uh, one other person actually uh, worth mentioning is Robert Simons, who plays um, Dr. Wickless, and he um, uh, unfortunately passed away in 2007 at the age of 80, um, but he uh, also has a, a Star Trek... Um, I'm telling you, man, my, my earlier comment is, is blown out of the water. <laughs> but uh, it's okay, because I get to mention the best iteration of Star Trek, which of course is Star Trek Deep Space Nine, um, and uh, Robert Simons played uh, Vedic Porta in the episode Accession. Um, he uh, also you know, has a pretty lengthy list of credits um, going back quite a bit further than, than some of our other actors beginning in 1954. Um, he also played Dr. Taney in The Exorcist. Um, and then lots of film and television uh, as well uh, throughout his, his pretty lengthy career. Um, nearly 50, I guess 52 years, the last credit on here is Cold Case, um, which I actually thought of the you know police procedural boom of the early 2000s was one of the better ones. I actually liked Cold Case oh, yeah. quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So one more note. It's not on IMDb, but we would be totally remiss if we did not mention Mr. Jean-Pierre Dorleac... That's right. The, it is there. Yes. You, you uh, just have to click yeah, see full cast. Full cast, yeah. yeah. The, the, he is the costume designer for the show. We've interviewed him on the show. Uh, he is the person at the beginning as they are wheeling Sam uh, back into the main area after receiving, receiving shock treatment. He's the one who says the line. I'm not even going to try to imitate it because it would just pale in comparison. Uh, but he's the, the person who says, you're the butcher. I know you're the butcher. Yeah. That, that I've always found that line very, very creepy. I don't know why. It's just the, the randomness of it. There's no follow-up. There's nothing. Just It's just there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah. What are some uh, weaker moments of the episode? Not, not problematic elements, but weaker elements of the episode. The transition into Samantha Stormer at the beginning, I feel like it's very expository. And regardless of how well done it is, it, it the that initial scene with the nurse and the doctor and everybody like trying to figure out what the hell's going on feels a little weak in comparison with the rest of the episode. Um, what about you, Dennis? Uh, and this is a really nitpicky thing, but when they start introducing the idea of Al losing contact with Sam because of his switching brainwaves. Yeah. Al always looks at himself fading out. <laughs> Instead of where where like Marty know, McFly? <laughs> yeah. Like yeah, yeah, like he's doing a McFly thing where it's like no, like he would be looking out of the room because from his perspective, 
everything else around him would be fading out, not him fading out. Right. That's a good point. You've ruined the whole episode. For <laughs> I, me know, now, I know. I know. I <laughs> know. Uh, and also, but you know, there is an episode coming up in the fourth season where something similar happens where they start losing contact and Al starts fading out. And in that episode, Al actually does look around him instead of to himself. Um, and also, again, super nitpicky. I'm going back to the pilot episode. The pilot episode, Al has a line that implies that he can't fade in or out. He's either there or he's not. Mm. Uh, because in the pilot episode, at one point, he startles Sam and Sam says, can't you fade in or something? And Al says, you tell me how to fade in agitated carbon corks and I'll make the scientific journal. Well, if we've learned anything, it's that they contradict quite a bit from that first season. Yes, so. uh, yeah, fast, yes. It, it is the pilot but, episode. But anyway. But no, that, that is a good point. That is a good point. I mean, I think that, that for, for practical purposes, that the effect itself works really well. And it makes, you know, I think that as a viewer, it can kind of make sense in your brain. Sure. That like, oh, yeah, you know, how frustrating would that be? And, you know, oh, well, part of Sam is still there, but but, but some of him is gone. So it makes sense that he's kind of fading in and out or whatnot. So, I mean, but I get what you're saying. Um, uh, and, and it you know, it is nitpicky. But if, if, if we don't do it, who will, Dennis? Yeah. And who and will? Then I think about it, it's like... I don't remember there being a line of dialogue in the episode, but I remember being explained somewhere like the reason that this is happening is that Sam's brainwaves are changing. Right. Do they ex- actually explain that in the episode? I mean, I think that that is kind of stated. I don't know if it's if it's stated exactly like that, but I do think that that's what one of the things that Al says. Okay. Which makes me wonder if that was explained in a novel after the fact. And because well, I, I, I feel like part of it too is that. You know, it's not so much that Sam's brainwaves aren't existing anymore, but it's that they're getting buried under the personalities. Sure. And the more that that, that it happens, the the more, you know, the, the receding of Sam's brainwaves is occurring. And so that that's just making it harder for Al to reach him. And that's why they can boost the power to help kind of boost the signal to get through to him. But, sure. you know, eventually it's going to stop working. Yeah. Um <laughs> I know that's being really super nitpicky. I guess the, the weaker thing, like we've it. touched on this before, is... Why is Verbena Beeks in this final version of the episode? Mm. She serves no purpose. It introduces the conceit that touching only brings in the image of someone, which becomes an important plot point in an episode later in the fourth season. But I wonder if logistically, if they had written the script, as we described earlier, they cast that actor, and for whatever reason they didn't, want to let the actor go so they still had her in the episode sure they had to fill time maybe somehow so they yeah it's it's like i said yeah it it doesn't make sense for her to be in the episode because she doesn't contribute anything other than like a little bit of a cool moment but right (laughs) right yeah um yeah i yeah that is kind of a mystery but uh i mean ultimately you know kind of like what we're saying i mean it it, it works um it it, it it works and again ends up kind of being one of my you know i don't want to say favorite but yeah favorite moments of the episode um 
So I feel like we've, you know, I really feel like we've covered most everything, uh, honestly. Um, what, what else do we got? We have, we, uh, we, 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 we did skip this? over uh, where Sam had been and where he's going. Uh, so it's well, interesting, huh. like, he, like, he, like he's pretty early on. So, <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, you know, October 19... 19- 54 we're pretty we're pretty early on in his leap so because, you know right. all of his personalities are in the future and some we didn't touch on like that's an interesting mystery for for the doctors yes like why does everything take place in the future um like there's even the scene like early on between nurse chatham and uh and the doctor where he that's why he wants to do further study one of the reasons it's like the the further aspect of like everything being the future is just like this fascinating thing um uh, but anyway, so previously Sam had been in September of 1954 in Pool Hall Blues, and excellent. Uh, after this episode, Which, funny enough, was another character that he leaped into with the nickname of Magic. Yes. yes. So that's you know, so yeah. that's an interesting tie. Uh, and then, Not really. and then after I'm that, <laughs> and then after that, we don't see Sam again in time until uh, July of 1955 in Heart of a Champion. Which we just there covered a couple episodes ago. Yeah, we did indeed. Um, you know, you mentioned the doctors kind of examining him and stuff, and I feel like we'd be remiss if we didn't touch on it just briefly, uh, especially with Doctor Masters. The you know the interesting thing about the character is is that uh, again, the beginning of the episode with the Samantha scene, he's very much out for himself. You know, there's this almost this idea of like this is a fascinating case, and I can get my name in all the journals, you know, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, very self-serving. And then it does seem to start to morph as the episode goes on, and he doesn't seem quite as black and white as that, which I appreciate. And even by the end of the episode, when he's arguing with Butch, there's this, you know, there there does come a little bit of uh, a little bit, not you know, not not adding, giving him too much credit here, but a little bit of um, compassion. Um, and I get that he's more pissed off about procedure not being followed, but I don't know. There seemed to be a little bit more to it than that. See, here's my thing. I I disagree with that because in the scene, that's Harrison crying in the background. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. I think he's just waking up from his nap. Um, uh, Betsy's out there. Um, in, in the previous scene with Jimmy, when, when Jimmy, when Sam Jimmy erupts and starts hitting him, I feel like Masters has the shock therapy done not because he actually thinks it'll benefit, but as a punishment. Oh, you have physically, yeah, you have physically, okay. you have physically attacked me. I am going to punish you. I yeah, I can I can see where you're coming from with that. I can't. Butch ends up really being the the villain uh, of the piece in a lot of ways, and you know, Doctor Masters, I think, kind of gets away with, again, I, I feel like maybe coming off a little bit more compassionate at times. Dr. Wickless and the rest of the doctors, though, are definitely very much just observers. Like, this is a fascinating case. I must know more. Um, but but Butch's confrontation with, with Nurse Chatham, I think, is actually really well done. And, and one of the reasons why I like it is because it would be very easy to be completely on board with Nurse Chatham. But Butch actually brings up a couple of good points, you know, about how you let me do it. You know, you stood by while I did it. You didn't stop me. Oh, she's like, well, no, I tried to stop that you. Is, that is gaslighting so bad. Well, like, if he physically tried to stop, or she physically tried to stop him. But she also didn't tell anyone. She's had this whole episode to say something to someone, and she's that been is, complicit. That is true. That is true. Well, 
There's that. But anyway, overall, <laughs> I think that the medical professionals in this episode fail us greatly. <laughs> they do. You know, like rewatching this episode, I feel like the 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 doctors and all their chatter on the side talking about, you know, depression, schizophrenia, blah, blah, blah. I feel yeah. that that was uh, Deborah Pratt flexing her writing muscles and going, oh, hey, look how much research I can do into, <laughs> into different uh, mental and intellectual uh, yeah. disabilities. I think that the, the, the attention that's paid to depression as well, um, while not you know, delving deeply into it, um, the fact that they bring that up. And and I think also touch on the fact that, and we kind of mentioned this earlier in the episode, but touch on the fact that at the time, because treatments, because the, the blanket was basically like, if you're mentally ill, this is how we treat you, as opposed to if, you know, if you're a depressive this is how we treat you. And if you're this kind of depressive and this kind, you know, if you're schizophrenic and, and, and the fact that we were, you know, just starting, I think, to explore in the United States anyway, these different kinds of treatments. And obviously that hadn't really happened in Havenwell, Pennsylvania in 1954. Um, the idea was regardless of whatever you had, we're going to give you a shock. You know, we're going to, you know, we're going to do this for you and take your pills and you might all be taking the same pills and they're just tranquilizers or what. And, and so, um, yeah, the the fact that there is kind of a, a separation there, and yet we see that the treatment doesn't necessarily match up. I would I would be interested to know, and and, and you know we don't have a lot of it obviously, but um, just going back to Al's place and seeing what some of the people had written about reviews, it, it didn't seem like a lot of people were talking about the treatment of, of mental health within this episode in 1991 or shortly thereafter. Um, I think today when we see this episode, we can't help but talk about it a little bit more. Um, yeah, I don't know. There's my contextualizing. I hadn't really done it much this episode. I got I got to throw it in there a little bit, so <laughs> for sure. Wait, the, it's you know this conversation wasn't happening then, but I was I was listening to another uh, podcast recently talking about um, true crime podcast right now, and even mm-hmm. now in, in this day and age, a lot of true crime podcasts they are problematic in how they represent mental illnesses. And like, for example, like touching on schizophrenia, like there's, there's a lot of things said in some podcasts that still do kind of spread misconceptions about. Sure. Like for example, like schizophrenia and how that contributes to violent crime and how actually it, 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 it doesn't like statistically schizophrenics, if anything, they are more likely to hurt themselves or to get hurt than to hurt other people. Yeah, I yeah, I mean the, the the realm of true crime podcasts is fascinating to me because there's a point where you start to wonder, you know, being the passive observer to get the story in the way that they do, does that make them complicit with the events that are occurring while they're documenting the story because they're not doing anything to actually help the situation and how self-serving does it end up becoming? I know that like um, S-Town was very much like that. You know, the idea that basically they're profiting off of this person's pain and not, you know, not actually doing anything to intervene or help. Dennis, you, you gave a very uh, animated reaction. I, I, I have. So first off, I should say, uh, Betsy and I binged most of S-Town on the way back from your wedding last summer, for one. Yeah. And two, my problems with S-Town, and I know we're, we're going off on a huge tangent here, um, is that different from Serial, Serial was a new episode week by week, and they were learning new information as they went along. S-Town, they threw all of the episodes up at once. And so in case you hadn't heard before, it's um, 
the, the journalist starts having a conversation with this one guy who I think his name was John. I may be getting that wrong. Who starts having a conversation with John, and the show's about him, but then in, at the end of the second episode, the journalist finds out that John has committed suicide. And this is in real life. Like, this is all real. And so the rest of the podcast is exploring why John killed himself. And over the next several episodes, they go down all of these rabbit holes as to why. And there's a lot of problematic things to it. Mental illness comes into it. Uh, he was gay, and for, a, for some point in time, he was a closeted gay person. Was it self-hatred over being gay? Is that what did it? And by the end, they reveal 90% sure what the likely case was that he had killed himself. That had nothing to do with any of that. But they still led you down all of these different rabbit holes before they gave you a very uh, real, intelligent answer as to the, the very likely reason that he did it. And the fact that they obviously they, they did some things out of order to weave a compelling story instead of just yeah. telling you that right off the bat, uh, I felt really gross. Yeah, no, I when, know. When I finished watching that, when I finished listening to that podcast. Yeah, yeah, me too. It was it was very sensationalized and it felt very irresponsible in a lot of ways, but you know, it was it was it was entertainment. I mean, and in spite of whether or not you found it entertaining, I think that if you look at it in the fact that it's entertainment as opposed to investigative journalism, then that's the right way to look at it. Whereas serial, you know, the the other thing about serial that that it was never you know, when someone's in prison and you're interviewing them and you're trying to get information about their case, it's very, very different than when you create this relationship with someone who says that they've got a hot tip for you the way that happened in S-Town. Yeah. Um, Serial did feel a little bit more responsible, a little bit more... But anyway, anyway. there's our, there's our <laughs> digression for the episode. <laughs> um, so I think... I think uh, oh, so, sorry, Dennis. What else, what else did you have for me there? We've got to get to the leap out. Well, I know. That's what I was going to do. Oh, okay, okay. All right, all right. So so let's point out, so look at the condition that Sam Biederman is in now. He's going to be treated for a lot right. of conditions that he does not have. I know, right? And he's naked. Yeah. <laughs> either that, either that, or he's in the Fermi suit. Oh, ooh. <laughs> That's, yeah. Oh, man. Uh, and so, yeah, we get the cute, like, uh, uh, yeah, almost like breaking the fourth wall and they, you know, the very meta, oh boy. And there we are. So to touch back on me learning what a season ending cliffhanger is, I remember watching, this is one of the rare episodes that I watched live as it aired. Because typically we had one TV in our house. It was ever whatever dad wanted to watch. So we usually recorded Quantum Leap and then I would go back and watch it the next day or something. But this one we watched live because he knew what a big deal it was. Yeah, and so we and so we all watched it together, and this happened. And I said something to the effect of like, "I can't wait until next week." <laughs> and my mom says it's not coming back on until September. And I was like, "What? No! Oh, <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah." No, I. Um 
I think I might have been a little bit aware just because uh, I used to, I, I I would read anything and everything in the house, especially at breakfast. Like when I got tired of reading the, the back of the cereal box, I would, I would read TV Guide. Um, and so I think that I had read like in TV Guide that, you know, that was the close of the season. So I, I had a little bit of awareness. Um, but it definitely, I mean, it thrilled me as a kid. I can remember vividly watching the episode and just being like, oh man, they, you know, I switch places and what's going to happen? I can't believe I have to wait that long. This is forever, you know. Um, and uh, and gosh, I can remember that season premiere just being so excited for it. Um, but it, it it is, I think, something that had I been watching the show now for the first time, it probably would have been something that entered into my brain at some point and been like, man, I wonder what it would be like if they switch places. But as a 10-year-old... I don't think I'd ever really given that any thought. I just took the show for what it was. And it's like, Sam's the one that leaps, Al's the hologram, that's that. And so for me, it was it was revelatory. It was like, oh my God, like, what's going to happen? Is that going to be the show now? Is, have they switched places permanently? Um, so we'll find out. Yeah. But, but then here's a, my question. Did you get that Sam had leaped home by him being a hologram? Yeah, I guess... I guess I didn't think about that either, honestly. I don't remember. If I did think about it, I certainly don't remember, Dennis. Yeah. I might not have put the two and two together there. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I don't think I figured it out because there was a commercial for the fourth season premiere mm-hmm. that laid out that Sam had leaped home. Right, because and, I remember that because yeah. it showed the scene where he runs through the door yeah. into Project Quantum Leap. And I remember that trailer. And that, to me, was just like... I, yeah, I was on cloud nine, could not wait to watch the episode at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, cause it's like, he finally goes home. And I think for me watching that episode and a, a you know, to do a, a, a brief pop psychology on myself here, but like moving around so much as a kid, the concept of home was, was very abstract to me, but it was very meaningful and important at the same time. So it was something that I always, I don't know, felt a strong connection with, with Sam about and wanting to get home. And, and so knowing that he was going to be home was, was just, yeah, beyond exciting, which is also the reason why the series finale destroyed me. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but, mm-hmm. um, but Dennis, I, I want to touch on something just very, very briefly, cause I do want to wrap up. Um, but, you mentioned Sam Biederman, and I think that this is definitely another one of those cases when the person that Sam has leapt into is left, I, 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 I mean, to be completely frank, is probably worse off than when Sam leapt into him. Oh, God. Like, yeah. like if there was a, a, a wrong to put right eventually in Sam's future, it would be to go back into Sam Biederman and mm-hmm. get him out of this hospital or something. Mm-hmm. Um so it, it is unfortunate to think that, you know, poor Sam Biederman's going to have to go back there and have endured, you know, electric shock. Because he's going to get some of that, right? You would think when he, when he leaps back in that he's, like, he's going to be... Well, I mean, if you right? want to go back, I mean, we were kind of in the very same situation of Sam leaping out at the end of Last Dance before an execution. Yes. Which, by the way, uh, Emma Fee, one of our listeners, she noted, uh, she said something very similar to what you had said, Sam, yeah. back on that one. Like She had memories of Last Dance before an execution going straight into this episode, which would have been an interesting tie right. between the two episodes. 
Yeah, and 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 and, and I think uh, it is interesting that they come so close together. Sure. Um, without being directly connected, because they do feel almost like they could be. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. So, um, final final thoughts. Mm-hmm. Final thoughts. And this yeah. is something uh, we can touch on more in the next episode. I have always felt that the next episode should have been the last episode of the series. Mm. Not not like they should have ended the series this then, but with with this idea of it's possible for Sam to go home, but he has to leap out again, and they leave you with the promise that one day he will come back home, which yeah. would have left it open for TV movies and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, I don't know specifics. I don't think it's anything's mentioned in Matt's book specifically about it. But just to make a guess, um, that obviously being sweeps um, when the episode aired, that they would have hoped to have more viewers on on the episode, um, and that it would have been a perfect way for them to leave, you know, things for the next season. Because I think at this point, the show it was it was. They were they were not in threat of getting canceled at this point. They were definitely coming back for a fourth season. So I, I think that maybe it was a way to sort of say, hey, you know, this is this is what we do. Uh, because it was, I mean, there were reruns throughout the entire summer. There was no, you know, there wasn't anything that got in the way of them rerunning during the summer because um, the Olympics would have been the, the following year. So um, that's just my guess, but I don't, I don't know, but you're absolutely right. There's a lot about this episode and I, and, and a couple of other reviewers that I was, um, watching on, um, uh, a uh, reading online, uh, brought that up, brought up the very fact that it, it was, you know, while it wouldn't necessarily be the first episode that they showed to people that if it was, they wouldn't have a hard time explaining what the show was about. Mm-hmm. You know, something that occurred to me, like rewatching it is like, even though I had been watching the show the entire season, like I, I guess originally I never really understood how the science quote science of it worked, and this is the first episode where I really started to really get what Al was, and how okay. the and how the project worked. Yeah, if that makes sense. Which is interesting because considering the next episode, we get a lot more information about that. Oh God, yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, yeah. I'm really looking forward to that next episode. <laughs> oh, it's gonna be fun. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it's yeah. interesting. Yeah, it's interesting to note um, uh, the original version. I don't think Don Belisario had it scripted out, but the original version, he had this idea in his head of Sam and Al being somewhere, a thunderstorm going on, Al getting spooked by the thunderstorm, saying, "I'm getting out of here," and he tries to walk through a wall, and he hits the wall. And then Sam walks through something. And that was the original version of this final scene. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I, you know, one of the things that, that I am really looking forward to talking about that is also in the, the leap out is that Al still has the hand link. Oh, yeah. And Sam doesn't have a hand link. Yeah. So there's this, you know, there's this compounded thing where if you... If you think about it, yeah, it's like, man, how how are they going to like? How is this going to work? Sure. Um, so yeah, I uh, I think I think that about does it for my end of Project Quantum Leap, Dennis. Uh, it does it for me. Like, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, this is this is a great episode. I don't know if it's necessarily it would be the first episode I would introduce right. to the show with, but uh, yeah, definitely a standout it, episode. 
it certainly ends this season, which has definitely struggled at times, quite frankly, on a very high note. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that, you know, we really had a stretch here now, four or five episodes that have been quite good after a stretch of four or five episodes that were kind of weaker. Um, you know, we had some weaker episodes at the front of the season, too. So we start off with the super high quality of Leap Home Part 1 and Part 2, and we're able to finish off with, you know, some super high quality stuff here in Shock Theater, which I think is great. So uh-huh. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, Dennis, should we leap out of here? We should leap out of here, and we will. Uh, we'll see you all next week, going into the fourth season for the leap back. Unless I can talk Sam into doing a bonus episode of doing like source code or something, because I keep meaning to try it. <laughs> Anything's possible. Something all Anything's possible. But, but most likely, we'll be back next week with uh, the leap back. Um, so thank you so much for joining us, and thank you everyone for listening. Uh, but in the meantime, we're going to leap out of right. here, and we'll be back next week, as Dennis said, with the leap back. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed what you've heard or have any questions or comments, don't be shy. Reach out to us online at fwwquantumleappod.com or Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Fates Wide Wheel. And remember to hit the subscribe button and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you may be listening. Until next time. Yeah.